Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Dope Black Podcast. This is the Dope Black Dad Podcast. My name is Marvin Harrison. Today, uh, it's actually raining outside. I've just come back from New York and um, it is very warm in New York. And I was on a rooftop for most of the week working and having meetings. And now I'm in the rain and I'm inside. In the rain, but it's raining outside, but I'm inside. Less excited about where I was. The only joy I have in my life right now is that Jeffrey Boachi is with me today. Uh, you're a Ghanaian superhero, is that? Correct. <laughs> I'm a Ghanaian superhero. <laughs> well, because your last name is Ghanaian, I'm adding the superhero part. Because yeah, you know I, what? I'm gonna keep that. I like <laughs> it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, um, definitely Ghanaian. We'll see about superhero. Let's see how the next few decades play out and see what see, see what we manage to achieve in that time. So that there's a rumor about a Ghanaian mafia. Have you been invited to the Ghana mafia? You know what? I might not have been, but my mum definitely has been. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> she's she's probably at the head of the table. You know, like all all the Ghanaian mums and aunties like know each other. They they all went to yes. school together. You know, so yeah, yeah. There's a way to any Ghanaian through our mums. Some somebody's aunt's going to end up at your dinner table cussing I'm, you out. Hundred so. percent. Yeah, you have to be very careful about what you say and how you say it around the Ghanaian elders because news travels. <laughs> yes. And and not to make uh you know sweeping generalizations, but I I feel like Ghana is like the nicest part of the diaspora. You know what? This is one of those those clichés that I, I think there's truth in it. Ghanaian <laughs> Ghanaian people tend to just be like like happy, welcoming. Yeah. You know, just you know, it's always akwaba, you know, it's always like let's hang out yeah. and eat. You know, it's where the good jollof comes from. So Wow. You've you've got to be a happy people when you're cooking the good jollof. I know. So Senegalese people are furious of you. Right? Yeah, that, just... that, yeah. I've I've been very controversial straight off the bat. There, I should apologize. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Unless you're going to say planting incorrectly, and then you're going to set fire to this whole oh, podcast. Oh Lord, the man said planting. Here we go. This is yeah, this yeah. is why I wrote a whole book with a chapter about how you pronounce plantain. Like I needed to get that in writing wow. for the ages. You're one of those people. It's so interesting because, like, in terms of blackness, like we are one, and I will come to war with you on anything that you believe in us impacting you as a black man, even more so. But when we start talking about pronunciations of planting, this is where I'm going to have to leave you out on the streets, bro, with the Oyimbos and the colonizers. 
I'm so sorry. Um, I'd love to know more. So, like, you know, you are an author. What other string and a teacher, obviously, what other strings do you have to your bow? Are you also a painter and a philosophizer? Um, <laughs> do, you, you work, do you work for Black Panther on weekends? What do you do? <laughs> um, the main one, I suppose, is um, uh, writing and teaching, being education. That's it. I do broadcasting. So I've got I've got a slot on BBC Radio 4 at the moment with Keris Matthews. That's Amazing. last happening. Um, so that's another string to the bow, I suppose, but they're all kind of linked. Um, nothing else really. Like I play, I play a bit of guitar, you know, I'm a bit of a DJ. I've got a vinyl collection. So, you know, there's all that, but yeah, yeah. I think we've listed the main, the main aspect. You're now going from skills to hobbies into just like something I tried once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then, so just in terms of you, like, where, where was you? Ra- where were you raised? Are you London? Are you? Yeah, Ghana? yeah. You- Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm Southwest London. I'm Brixton through and through. That's oh, wow. That, that's where I came up. Yeah. Um, what years were your formative years in Brixton? What era um, was it? I'm, I'm a 1982 vintage, which means okay, cool. yeah. so you're like a young man for real. Yeah, man. I'm, uh, I'm 40. I was, what can Why I say? Do you- this is annoying. No, I don't want to do this. Let's turn our cameras off. <laughs> I was 40 in March, I know, but I've been like doing something new with my hair. So it might be taking a few years off. Um, but yeah, I, I, I grew up in Brixton and really it was the 90s. Like the early 90s is when is when I did my growing up. Can you contextualize early 90s Brixton? Yeah, because it's not like it is now. First of all, we need to make that very clear. If anyone knows Brixton, this kind of place of coffee shops and craft beer, that is not what it was like in the late 80s and early 90s. Brixton was, it just came off the back of the Brixton riots and stuff like that. Like I'm born the same time when riots were kicking off, you know, mm. um, Relton Road, Cold Harbour Lane. And it was it was in that time when Brixton was still seen as a bit of a dangerous place to be, largely because it had a large black population, a large black community, pre- predominantly Jamaican um, and West Indian. So I, I grew up in a very Caribbean environment, but with pockets of... Um, obviously the Ghanaian community and other immigrant families, but it definitely wasn't a place where middle-class people would come and hang out and eat pizza, you know, and enjoy their weekends. So the Brixton that I grew up in very much felt like it was on the periphery of mainstream, let's call it what it is, mainstream, like white society. Um, Mm. It was a place that people didn't come through and I, therefore, my worldview was very much shaped by being part of that community, of that mm. black community, um, which which I feel had a big impact on my on my growing up because it was a whole curriculum that I learned, like in modern Brit- uh, British blackness mm. in the in the hub of it because Brixton was always like a cultural hub, you know, for black people. So that yeah, formative years definitely growing up in Brixton. And I, and I assume you were surrounded by people who got up to all sorts of different things. What what was happening for you while you clearly didn't get into those things? I don't know. Did you have a secret Narcos edition, Narcos Africa? Did you what what was what was what, what, what was your journey in terms of like navigating some of the, the environment or environmental yeah. change? I think that part of it was that I sort of clocked quite early on that the the road was a place that was risky. You know, and I sort of knew that from a really young age. So even though I grew up on an estate, 
I wasn't like of the estate. I wasn't hanging out a lot. But at the same time, you can't grow up in somewhere like an estate in Brixton in the early 90s and not know your way around the streets. Mm. So I had to be very savvy, very young, where to go, how to go there, how to carry yourself, just walking, you know, walking home from school. Because I went to school in Battersea, my secondary Mm. school. That meant that I had to get through London. And you know as well as I do, the most dangerous time for any young black male is probably between the ages of like 12 and like like 24, you know. That's when, whether you like it or not, just by existing in a black male body, you are you have a proximity to certain certain realities, you know. So I I sort of knew how to carry myself and I knew where to avoid but at the same time I lived on an estate so Mm. part of it was I feel like I had a bit of a diplomatic community just by where I lived so as I was coming home from school I'd be out in the West End with my little pre-hipster friends and Mm. I'd come back and I was never that like trendy in terms of roadman chic or anything I never wore like air forces and things like that I was always a little bit quirky but people wouldn't ever start with me or start trouble with me and I think it's because I was from that estate and everyone mm. knew my face so mm. why are you going to start on someone that's from the, from the same estate as you you know so yeah, yeah you, I, I kind of had that walking in that light in that way from that culture that part of town added value when you went into the professional like your adult life has that added value or has it been a, a hindrance are you waking up with like PTSD shudders or are you using that as a way to kind of attack you know, things that you're doing now? Yeah. Um, you know what? I feel like it's a skill set that you learn and absolutely you deploy that throughout your professional career because I was never given the full sense of security of being around like lots of people who were, who were, you know, the kind of people that populate the professional spaces that I ended up in, I didn't grow up with, Right. Mm. So I never got too relaxed in those environments. And I think that in a weird sort of way, it's a good thing and a bad thing, because what it means is that I've always been hyper aware of the fact that I'm not really of those worlds. So I entered into mm. professional spaces. When I started working in the city in my 20s, um, I got a job at Canary Wharf, actually. I never let myself get swept away by it. I always felt like there's a whole other world that people around me here in Canary Wharf don't know about. So that allowed me to really like protect my sense of self. On the one hand, that's quite tragic because you're having to like live a double life. But on the other hand, it means that I was never going to get swept into, I'm one of you, I'm one of them. And then get the rude awakening when something happens that reminds you that you're not. Because mm. that's the way it tends to play out. You sort of realise, ah, actually, yeah, structural racism is a thing. Yeah, I'm m- marginalising this way okay, I was never really at the table, all right? I've never had that. I'm not going to say naivety because it it sounds like a thing, but yeah. When, when, when did you become aware of any form of like structural biases or, or racism or challenges that prevented you from having the same opportunity? When did it first come to your consciousness? Um, when I went to college, because, you know, I grew up in Brixton. My primary school was in Brixton Hill, so right in the middle of Brixton back when it was still Brixton Hill. Secondary school, as I've said, was in Battersea, but it was still a lot of, I went to a Catholic secondary school, so a lot of black kids, 
Filipino, a lot of Irish, Portuguese. So it was a lot of like immigrant families. Then I went to college in Wimbledon. I went to Wimbledon College and that was different. There was still a mix, but I was in a proper minority. There were there were no other black boys in the entire sixth form at the, at the point when I joined it. And that's when I realised that something's going on here. Because it was quite a good sixth form. Mm. And I was thinking, what is going on here that all those boys that I grew up with, went to school with, are not here now. And as I looked around further, I thought, yeah. oh yeah, there's like rich people live around here and none of them are black. So that's when I started to really clock that the professional world that I was moving into had this racial slant. Mm. And then what does that do to someone like you? Because the way you kind of describe yourself is that you were slightly outside of some of the more stereotypical black cultural elements, um, uh, what's things that are happening in the city in a Brixton environment. What, what was it, comic books? What was your thing? Because I think a lot of the things that you probably were passionate about as a child will probably make you a victim of bullying or being highlighted as different. Whereas in this era, it's like, oh, you like comic books? So there's 75,000 other people and we're yeah, all on yeah, Instagram yeah, yeah. doing our stories yeah, of comic exactly, books. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What, 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 how, can you give me a bit more insight inside the type of, the type of young man you were? Yeah. And, and what those challenges were? Man, like, it's funny you say comics because I love comics. And I was into comics. So you can tell, you look at me, he's like, that guy's a geek, man. He liked comics in the 90s. Like, it's, it's obvious I like comics. Listen, you're, you're being bred to be a murderer or you love comics and obscure hip hop. It's one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, all we that's it, man. That's it. So I was all, yeah, I was, I was big into comics. So, you know, the little money I could get, I used to save money by like not getting my hair cut. And then I would use the money that I was supposed to um, spend at the barber on comics and I'll cut my own hair. And thank goodness there are no smartphones because my haircuts must have been outrageous, you know, to say the least. So I was, I was always like on the, on like counterculture. I was interested in that, right? Which is interesting because when you're growing up black in the eighties and nineties, there's not a lot of black representation on TV. There were like four, four channels. There were like three black people that you ever saw. Daley Thompson, Lenny Henry, like maybe someone yeah. else. You know, you had moments when it popped off, like the Real McCoy, you know, that kind of era, Desmond's started to get this kind of broadening. And that was cool. But that felt like, that felt local. That wasn't, the whole country wasn't watching the Real McCoy. Do you know what I mean? So I was always like counterculture and I didn't see a lot of other black stars who were countercultural. There was no one like Richard Ayoade, mm. like, you know, like quirky black people. It just yeah. wasn't a thing. So I felt like I was carving my own path. And I think that that, again, is this sort of like tragic superhero or superpower. Because yeah. I was making my own lane. Were there, were there any TV cultural heroes or, or, or people that you kind of could look up to even take parts from? I did a whole piece on uh, TV show, Black Fathers who, who were in TV shows and the role that they played in kind of shaping my perspective on Black Fathering. So did you have any other sort of Black TV heroes or film heroes that you felt that I can see myself a bit more in them than I can in some of the other stereotypical type leaders or, or prominent people. Yeah, man, there were, there were definitely some from America. So like a lot of people, Uncle Phil was, you know, TV dads, like some of the lessons that he gave Will through that TV show, they stuck with me, mm. like they resonated, you know, I'm not even going to lie about that. It's actually quite profound. Um, so having that kind of, the older cousins in America, the kind of glitziness on watching American movies and TV shows, those, those lot of that. UK wide, 
or UK based, I feel like I've mentioned the real McCoy and I feel like, you know, homage needs to be paid to those legends, man. Like Robbie G, Eddie Nesta, you know, Felix Dexter, you know, Curtis Walker. Um, these are like, I was just like seeing comedy from a black perspective and someone who's into alternative culture. So I always liked alternative comedy because that was really popping off in the early 90s. You know, most of the comedy that was doing well was alternative rather than your mainstream people doing like racist jokes or whatever. Um, and to have like black alternative comedians was big. That And that, I think mm. that helped me to see that actually me being quote unquote alternative, there's a lane for that in this mainstream. So yeah, mm. big up all of those people, to be honest. Um, because they're they're really pioneers. Fun. So I, I always reference like Alan Jackson in EastEnders, who was like a dad who he was with Carol, but he looked after children that wasn't here. He had a very close relationship with his nan, just like those types of figures. And you're just like, actually, that's the more human side of black masculinity, and not necessarily the supercharged masculinity, which is like I speak in like ebonics, and I, as you mentioned, I wear Nikes and like. All I talk about is girls and money. Like, you know, there's no nuance to black men in, in TV and film that really shows us at that time. Um, in in terms, like, obviously you've written a book, obviously, which is uh, incredible. What was the... Because, like, writing a book, I've, I've written one. It's not a joke. It's not a thing that you just kind of do in your spare time. Like, mm, I'm writing a book. Like, it actually takes a lot of significant amount of effort, especially when you've actually had it commissioned and someone says, we're going to put it out. Now there's a timeline, there's a deadline, there's a front cover you got to approve. There's like, you know, it's a whole thing. What made you want to write um, a book, but this book specifically also? Are we talking about, I, I I heard what you said, the most recent one? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like waiting to the point where what you want to say is so, is burning so strongly that it feels urgent that, you you know, when you have a thought, and you feel like, no, that's so mm. important. If I don't get it out now, I'm going to forget it. And that'll be a loss to the universe. That's the kind of mm. urgency that I'm waiting for before I start thinking about, no, this needs to be a whole project. Because then it means that I'm not forcing it. I'm just sort of like channeling my thoughts, my insights, my energies into something that I then need to wrestle into shape. So I heard what you said. It's like 15 years of teaching, I left the classroom in December last year. That's the last school that I worked at. And it was like a pause for breath. Like, what was that? What was 15 years of education or in education as a black teacher in this country? Mm -hmm. What did that feel like? And when I stopped to reflect, there were all these insights and all these questions and complications. And I thought, no, no, this is saying something important about not just education and race, but just, you know, race in general in this country. And that's the motivation for turning it into a book-shaped thing. I hear you. And, and, and we'll, for anyone that reads it, what would you want them to take away? What, what's the before and after of someone? And it, does it differ if someone black is reading it versus someone who maybe white, middle class? Like, where does the intersectionality like kick yeah, in? Yeah, man, that is, that's the key question because that's what I have to ask myself. Sometimes I flip between the two. Sometimes I'm writing directly to black people. I'm writing to us, you know, and I will say that, you know, and I say you, but in the context, it's, I'm talking to, you know, black people who are navigating a white world in the 21st century with me. And other times, like there's a chapter called um, um, I Don't See Colour. And I just 
talking in second person to white people that have said that phrase to me. I don't see colour. So I'm talking to white people there. So it's a bit of both, depending on where you dip into. But I think generally speaking, I want to write to anyone who is not aware of the truth and the realities of the situation that we found ourselves in. They are going to get a defined and distinct picture of what racism has led us to now by reading this book. Because I feel like you can't tackle the problem until you see it for what it is. And all I'm doing in these books, I'm trying to make sure you can see the problem. It's called I Heard What You Said. So I'm going to be the one that will say, let me explain to you what the situation is so you can accept it. And once you've accepted it, then we can go forward. Yeah. So really, it's for people struggling. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big statement, and I, and I don't want to mischaracterize what it is that you're saying. Uh, but are you saying inherently that schools are unsafe places for minorities? Is that is that the headline? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Or, or so you saying it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that everyone gets like caught up on semantics here, and it all gets very emotive. So you, people hear things like you know, society is structurally racist and they think you're attacking society. Schools are unsafe places. They think that you're attacking education. Nah, I'm just talking about, you know, the objective truths of the situation. The statistics will tell you that racially there are problems in society that mean that if you're marginalised by race, our institutions are not safe for your well-being and for your flourishing. And you can just back that up with the facts, the exclusion rates, you know, the the school-to-prison pipeline that is linked to structural racism. Um, these are things that mean that if you're marginalised by race, your experiences are going to be less fortuitous in many different ways. So when I say mm. safety, it's not like I'm not trying to be alarming, you know. I just mean that your ability to live and live freely and flourish as an individual is being impacted on by this thing called race that was invented in the 1660s. So that's what I mean when I say things like a school could be an unsafe place because society is an unsafe place for many people for many reasons. Homophobia makes an unsafe place for gay people. Sexism makes an unsafe place for women and so on. Anti-Semitism for Jewish people and so on and so forth. So that safety is, I think people need to interrogate the word safety more before they start getting too hit up about who's calling out the unsafety of different spaces. Yeah. So, so I, I read a quote and I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think the person said that safety is an illusion and it's not, it's not actually real. It's not actually possible. Um, and you just alluded to multiple lived experiences that are constantly being um, lambasted every day. I think where we measure, which is difficult to measure in real terms, but how we measure the level of impact is if you say, if you are a black woman, who's Jewish, LGBTQIA, that your lived experience is going to be impacted in potentially four different ways. And when you compound them on any one individual, that lived experience is adverse in comparison to someone who isn't being um, measured or marginalised in that same way. But like, how do you reconcile that experience for Black people? Like, how, how do you reconcile in terms of like safety? Like, are we... Are we ever going to be safe? And and is it the idea of us wanting to be safe an illusion that's distracting from potentially doing something about it? Mm. I know what you mean. I feel like the construction of white supremacy, that's what we're really talking about here. 
you know, which again goes back yeah. to the 17th century, was like cemented at a time of economic exploitation. You know, that in itself, that constructed a whole society that blackness was not safe in. The the whole point mm. is that blackness has, is subjugated. It's lesser than, it's demonized and so on. That's what white supremacy is. So blackness as a concept is never going to be safe. And its mm. safety is tied to its non-whiteness. So the only thing that makes mm. blackness make any sense is that it's not white. But boom, what have we done? We've taken blackness, and I say we is the in the broadest possible sense, the diaspora has taken blackness and turned it into something that you can live in and celebrate and and teach and learn and grow in. Like black culture is a thing that exists and it's broad and yeah. it's beautiful and it's multifaceted and it's commodifiable. But blackness within that is still not safe. Because if it if it was just about money mm. and about cultural like currency, then blackness would have been clear years ago because every type of music that comes out that gets sold back to the world is black music. Black culture continues mm. to be commodified and revered and copied and appreciated and appropriated. And still black bodies are not safe, you know? So mm. this isn't about how far blackness is consumed or accepted by white society. This is about the concept of blackness and how it's demonized over centuries and to what end. And the end point is always yeah. back to white supremacy. This idea that whiteness as a concept yeah. is supreme and has a right to rule over everything else. Because that's a fiction. It's, it's just a fiction that predates all of us. So can we ever be safe? Mm. Um, on, until we admit what I've just said, that white supremacy is the gravity that pins us all to the ground, until everyone can mm. see that and accept it, then blackness will always be in a very precarious position, I believe. And, and do you have faith? Or does your, does your work not extend to that far? As in like, that's not what the important thing is. Like, because to, to be honest, you know, writing books is a difficult thing. You can't do it all in a book. But it, this may be an extension of your opinion. But in my view, it's that my personal view versus the view that I communicate at times have differences because... Where I'm at is at a position of action. I, what can I do within the realm of my power, whatever I have access to, to make change? What I'm speaking about is highlighting and raising the context in which my action is happening in. And they are, in, in a timescale, the words come before the action. So I probably talk more visibly than I act more visibly. You probably would, half people wouldn't have a clue what I'm up to half the time because it just happens in a room which isn't particularly visible to everybody. And I have a preference for it. But do, do you have a difference between what you would like to happen versus like what you've shared in the world so far? Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like, you know, I'm an optimistic person, first of all. There's a reason why I got into education, because I believe in the capacity of people to, to fulfill unmet potential that you can't even see. So I'm definitely an optimist, right? Um that gives me a lot of faith. That gives me faith in people. Because sometimes I have to look around and just think, is it worth it? That's a deep, it's a deep moment, you know? 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Like, I, I live in... Um I live outside of London now. I live in Yorkshire. And so a lot of my time mm. now, I spend in parts of the country that are very, very non-diverse, very, very white. Mm. And sometimes I look around and I just think to myself, is it worth it? Is the energy I'm pouring into mm. trying to illuminate these problems, is it worth it for this lot, for these people? And I have to say, yes. Otherwise, what's, what's the point? And... That's why I like work with kids because kids are definitely always worth it because they're still working it out. They're the key to an unknowable future. Um, so yeah, the, the actions, I suppose that I, that I'm living out, you know, it's, it's in all the little choices and the big choices, what I choose to do, why I went into education, why I teach, why I work with schools, um, you know, why I write certain things for certain places. Those are the actions. And as you say, books are, even though they look like weighty things, they're, they're a drop in the ocean. You know, they're an introduction to much bigger ideas and follow up actions that you would, you would hope other people will take on. So, Jeffrey, I am uh, the current incumbent mayor of all blackness and I'm about <laughs> to end my term. OK, I, I'm tired. I'm going to go and retire and live on a beach and become an advisor. And I'm nominating you what? to be the mayor. And all, the whole of Black Mayor is listening to you right now. They're passionately standing there with their beady eyes, um, <laughs> looking for hope. What, what would your message be to, to the diaspora? At this point today, knowing what you know, you know, and, and I'll contextualize a little bit more. The US is, is hyper-consumerism, crushing Blackness. It's actually anti-Black in its design. Uh, you've got Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, you have Putin. The whole of the North Atlantic Treaty and then everyone that's affiliated to it is pretty anti-black anyway. There was this whole thing, this idea that the, uh, NATO was a white supremacy order um, to maintain white supremacy. It's actually quite interesting because Rwanda tried to get entry in like 97 and they got declined several times. Uh, actually, they didn't even get declined, they got ignored. Ignored? <laughs> they, just, they, just not even declined. they didn't get the application. Um, 
So, so yeah, you're standing in front of a room full of people and you're, you know, you know, there's queer faces in there. There are women in there. There are mothers and fathers in there. There are disabled people in there. And they just want to hear something from you in terms of where we're going, what your worldview is and how, how, what they should do. Everyone's looking for that silver bullet. Do, do you have a view of what you would share with an infinite room of black people from the diaspora across all intersections? In the great meeting of all black people everywhere. First things first is like... It happens every Thursday. Every Thursday. All right. <laughs> I need to check check my spam <laughs> inbox just in case we're missing these meetings. Like, you know, oh my God, I've got a whole load of them here. Um, the first thing I'll say is like, <laughs> we don't do enough recognition, right? I feel like marginalized communities do an incredible thing of existing in a precarious state and then actually not just existing, but living. So not just surviving, but actually like thriving in a conceptually precarious position. And that deserves a round of applause because that means that you have adopted, for better or for worse, a number of strategies, a number of skills, qualities that enable you to exist in what is essentially a dystopia. So black peoples, plural, have somehow worked out how to exist and go to bed and wake up in a dystopian state because that's what was created in the in the 17th century and was, you know, embedded in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. So that needs to be recognised. It means that we've got a certain thing about us that needs to be, needs to be like held up. And also it's probably the exact same thing that wider society can benefit from if only it could see over, you know, see past the racism. Because immigrant communities are off the hook, man. Like immigrants play the game so well just to actually like we think about what it takes to be in a marginalized position and then to enter a space that's not safe and then to have kids and to exist and then for us to end up here that's huge that's like so i'll just start with a standing ovation you know um and then i'll just remind people that we aren't at the table but the table is not that important. Like, don't feel like being at the table is going to be the answer. Really, we need to build our own tables, man. That's 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 crucial. And we can do it. And every group can do it, you know. So that's what I would like to re- say at the great gathering of all the black diaspora on Thursday. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I was really thinking, I would have got you to close your eyes and, and visualise it. Because I, I envision it would be a pretty powerful experience just to even be present in it so I, I just came back from uh, New York as I mentioned and like while I was there I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn with a lot of black people and then you get such an energy um, that when you come back you feel you, you kind of walk differently start walking through people at train station it's like get out of the way it's like black people here um, what, what, would, what, what, what would happen if you stood in front of the the 1% the caucated 1% and they were sitting in front of you and they were like, well, what's this whole thing you're talking about? And what, what do we have to do? It's really interesting because post-George Floyd, the big question was just like, well, what do we do though? No one knew what to do. And, and it's the first time I realized that, and I, and I want to use my language very carefully, is that a lot of the subconscious understanding of how the world works in whiteness doesn't exist. It's not present to any of it. Because I, I think there's this habit to feel like they do know. They know, and then they sit there and they plot against our things 
And sometimes being so pro-white themselves, they just don't see you. They have no idea what your problems are. And even if you tell them, they're like, well, when you just do what I do, just go to the police. And you're like, no, 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 because... And you find yourself explaining this interconnected... Like, at some point, you start feeling it's a conspiracy theory because you're like, the reason why I don't go to police is because the police think I'm the criminal on site. And the reason why they think I'm the criminal on site is because the media and film and TV and games says I'm yeah. a criminal on site. <laughs> and then the reason why, you know, you find... Start, and by the time you've linked it all together, you've spoken so much, you don't even know what's real yourself. You know this is real in here. Like, if you tell me that you got stopped and searched, I already know five things inherently straight away. I just know something. And I and I, and I empathize with you straight away. But if you don't come from that world and you experience those things, you kind of just like... So the, so the, what, and then what yeah. happened? So like the white woman held their back, pointed at you, and then so they just came over. And you didn't have... You didn't have a gun or a knife, or you wasn't being loud, or you didn't, you know, not listen to what they were saying. Like you have to be like, no, I did all the things. It's like a real thing. Have you ever found yourself having to explain to a white person why you're persecuted? Has it worked? Yeah, like what's amazing is that my naivety for years is that I I assumed that people understood way more than they did how racism plays out and works. And I assume they thought about it more than they actually do. And that was just naive on my part. That's like really stupid of me because they don't. Like most people don't think about the thing that doesn't affect them, even though it does affect them. So all this energy that I spent and do spend on thinking about racism, on thinking about identity politics and social justice and marginalization all that energy that I've spent on that and time, I realised like a lot of people I know have not spent any of that energy. And that was like a real awakening for me because I was thinking, whoa, so your life is just different. Like you, you're vibrating on a much lower frequency than I am. You know, like that blew my mind. And, and, I, and I, it, I really clocked it when, when George Floyd was murdered because the reaction of the white mainstream was so like, we're so shocked. I was like, you're shocked? So you had no idea that this was reality? It's like, I was shocked that they were shocked, to be honest. And that stayed mm. with me for a long time. I realised that people I knew, people I'd worked with, I was like, you guys have just been just eating strawberries and colouring in for decades. Like, this is the real world, man. What do you mean yeah. you're shocked? Why are you crying now? So that, that was a real surprise for me because lived experience... It's a phrase that gets used a lot, gets thrown around a lot. I researched it recently. It's like, what does that even mean? It's complex stuff, you know? Like, lived experience means that your perception of reality through your day-to-day, everyday experiences has an impact on the way you are, the way your ideology is constructed. So you are politicized mm-hmm. by your everyday experiences. That's a huge concept to get your head mm-hmm. around. It means that your reality becomes political just by the way you are constructed by the system around you. So the lived experience of black people is a political experience. I've been doing political activism for decades without even realizing it, just by thinking about it, by living it, by having mm-hmm. to navigate different spaces. So yeah, that's that was a shock to me. One thing I'd love to say to like um to people who ask, what do we do? is you need to own and understand how you have participated 
in systemic problems. I think that is so key. And that's for individual people, mm. you know? So if you've got a problem with racism, the first stop on that train is how have I participated in racism? And how does my existence participate in racism? How do my privileges participate in racism? It's the same for any area of social justice. If you've got a problem with sexism as a man, you've mm. got to start with how has my existence participated in sexism? You know, the privileges that I have, mm. the times where I've not had to worry about X, Y, Z. It's so interesting that you said it. Because I think like my, I, I've just been on a very long journey and, I, and it's so weird because I've never really had answers to her questions. And, I, and I've been lived my life by questions, not answers. And so my curiosity means I, I would like to find that out. And a part of that is to obviously do some research and know some theories, some understanding. But other part of it is you've got to actually live it. Like, it's, it's all great in theory. And when we talk about how we should coexist, how we should treat women, LGBTQI people, disabled people, it all makes perfect sense when it's written down. We do not talk about the grey in humanity, the intersections of humanity, that if you are black, LGBTQ, but raised in a completely different town, or you're adopted and your mum and dad is white and they've gifted you particular privileges, you can't just read that book and then present as that. And like, even for me as a black male, like, my who, who I am inside, my inner child is a child. I'm six. And I'm like, I can't call many her. I'm trying to help. But my exterior is I'm six foot two, stocky black man with a beard. And that prototype, that archetype of human doesn't get to be soft and feel, care, be impacted in that way. And so there's a gap between my reality and perception. And that creates a new reality for me. So even I'm like curiously trying to fumble around life and figure it out with my questions but my presence has an inherent meaning to everybody. And I have to live within the lens of what that meaning is. I don't get to design my own existence. I don't get to say that I cry three times a week and, you know, I'm in therapy all the time and, you know, I'm on a... No one cares. It's just like, people just want to know on a switch, are you safe or not? Are you for us or are you against us? Are you helping or are you hindering? That is just that simple. So all the nuance that makes you that person gets lost in that conversation and you don't get to explore it in whiteness. You don't get to explore it largely within blackness either because within blackness, black men still stand at the top of it, dominating everybody else, doing a terrible job of representing the full scale of blackness. And so even if you are, you're just seen as that. Like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the baby whether I like it or not. Like I can sit there and tell you all the reasons why I'm not, but... If I raise my voice too loud, if I make an off-the-cuff joke, if I, I'm the baby for, for as long as people can remember what it is that I've done. So it means that you live in this precarious space of like never really being able to explore and be curious. But I think inherently what people are saying is that your curiosity at the expense of people is now a problem and I need you to come with me with answers. Come to me fully formed. Come to me as a real person, not making these mistakes. I cannot be a consequence of your mistakes which leaves very little room for a very human experience. I did ask. I, I, I feel like um, in my, my, probably my closing thought on it is that I think for me, the, the space that you hold as a person and when you're creating these, these works and putting them in, into the world is so valuable and important. 
But like, I would love to explore the idea beyond the boxes that society put you into. I would love to be able to do that. What does it look like just to be a person that's passionate about these 11 things? This is who I am. These are my values. That's my, that's the foundation. And then these are some passions and then there's some beliefs and that's who I am. And then you get to know me and then that's who I am. But I think inherently I am just someone that fits those boxes. And if I don't, no one has the time to figure out the, the complexities and the nuances of your character, which is inherently what I feel that like happened to you growing up on an estate. It's just we're very lucky that the consequence wasn't that you weren't beaten up every day for 10 years because you like comic books. You was allowed to be that. But inherently, many people were attacked, beaten up, ostracized for that. And so that nuance gets shifted and we just will become uh, an extensive act of each other. I, I pretend to be the baby because that's going to keep me safe. Then I start saying and doing things to get, you know, enough respect so that I, I'm not under threat. And then I end up building a whole personality based on someone I don't even very like very much. That's it. That's it. I think that's really on point because the, the sort of the crude building blocks of identity the society gives us out of which we construct ourselves, they are very crude. It's, it's like primary colours. It's like, you know, one or two different shades and that's it. So then black masculinity becomes boom. It becomes black masculinity. That's it, you know. And those two things come with a whole list of attributes that are historically proven and reiterated over and over again. But the nuances, that's, as you say, that's where humanity lives. And I see it in, you know, if if you look at some of the big cultural artifacts that black culture has given to the world, you know, if, if you look at hip hop, if you look at, in this country, UK rap, grime, UK drill, you see artists who have a lot of a lot of shades of nuance in them. I love music. That's why like I write about music and obviously like do broadcast and things like that. And all that nuance is getting funneled into very, very crude kind of blocks of identity. And then it becomes a weird situation where it becomes like this chicken and egg thing of is the person's identity being constrained by these you know, rules or are the rules sort of like constraining that person's sense of identity and everything you just said about what is inside someone, you know, the real core of of a person that can get lost. It can get swamped to the point where you've got no openly gay rappers. We've got a few now, Mm. you know, we've got Lil Nas X now, but the whole time I was into hip hop, no, you couldn't even be a gay rapper. It wasn't even a concept that held in its own way. You know, the flamboyance that you might have had in certain artists, you couldn't have that in hip hop. But then obviously within the complex mesh of identity that we have within us, there's all sorts. There's a whole spectrum of humanity. So I feel like that's, that's something which I think deserves attention. Um, Mm. And expression, I think is a big part of that. When I told you that I would, you know, I was a prototype hipster walking around Brixton in Hawaiian shirts and like Converse All-Stars and stuff like that, like being a bit alternative. I was allowing myself to be expressive. I was allowing myself to own cultures that I'm not allowed to own. You know, there were no like black quirky figures that I was getting my reference notes from in the early 90s. But Mm. I gave myself that that right. Mm. That's got to be a win, I suppose. 
that's a very hard thing to do if you want to survive in a world that doesn't see you like that. I, I, I think you have to weigh up the chances of standing out on your own without a tribe, without an identity that has assumptions attached to it to keep you safe. You stand the risk of really being on your own and falling foul of whatever the environment creates for you. But at the same time, the other side of it is that you also run the risk of being disenfranchised, being deeply unhappy and disconnected anyway within the everything that's going on, knowing that that's not who you really are. Like, I, I just think, so, like, I, I was really passionate about creating all of the major concepts that they said that a healthy man should make. And I spent a lot of time crafting, building those things. And then when I built them, I think I was unhappier. And it's not it's nothing to do with anybody else. It's not, it's not about other people. It's just about, like, not having the freedom to choose and sit there and be like, what actual life would make me happy? You're told that this life is a worthy one. This is what a happy life looks like. Do these things. And inherently, we like, you, you create them and it takes such an effort to create them. By the time you've got them all, you're just like, oh, I just want to keep them because I can't, what, what else can I do? Like, and also loyalty to the people that you've created these things with force you into a very narrow existence of just like, I have to maintain this now. Also, perceptions are like, there's a value attached to being married, being a father, being a career person, being an author, being, you know, all the broadcasts, all of these titles that give you steam in society. But you never asked your inner child if you really wanted to do that. Are these as a matter of circumstances? Just like, oh, it just happened. It's like, oh, well, someone asked me, do I want to write? And so I said, yeah, I'd write. But is that what is that who you are? Is that what you want? And so I think when we do our meeting with men, we I fight quite hard to push this really radical idea that start again today. Like start really communicating what matters to you, who you are, who you're not. Your declared commitment versus your undeclared commitment. What's your mission to be? How do you turn that into a purpose? How do you make money and survive while doing all of those things? Exactly. That's, so, that's key. Yeah. That's key, man. Like understanding your core values is work. That takes work mm. and effort. Most people can't off the bat tell you what their core values are. Because I've tried that. I've been mm. into schools and businesses and you get into it and I say, all right, with a partner, articulate your core values. What do you believe? And people are like stuttering because they don't know. So they've mm. got a sense of how they want to live and they've got a sense of what motivates them. Some people haven't even got that. They've been beaten by society mm. so much. They know that they make money doing X, but they don't know what their core values are. Because if you don't know what your core values mm. are, then you don't make deliberate steps. So mm. all of the stuff, like you said, all the titles, the, you know, the accolades, the whatever comes your way, the money, the respect, it's meaningless. If you are not stepping in accordance to your core values, then you are not stepping correctly. And you cannot wait for external validation. You cannot wait for, you know, any kind of like proof that you're, a good or valuable person, you need to know in yourself that you're acting according to your core values and live out the best of your core values. And I feel like that's something which when you get the complications of like identity thrown at you, you know, like your ethnicity, your nationality, your class, your gender, your religion, all those complications, that's when you really need to know your core values because otherwise you'll get sucked into so many different corners by accident. And you won't even know who you are. And therefore you won't know mm. what you're doing. And you've got to mm. know what you're doing. And that means you've got to know why you're doing mm. it. Mm. It's really powerful. 
Thank you so much, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. Look, I, I feel that last point was really, it's really an and to what it is that you've done. You've done an incredible job, by the way, of starting a conversation. And for me, like I never really had a, I, never, I didn't really have a great experience in education. In fact, I spent most of my time in education being told that I, I, I'm not actually anything. And then after a while, it would have stuck if I just didn't have this, like there was a little voice that was just like, if I'm not going to be anything in your eyes, then I, I'll just do what I want to do. But my, my, my computer wasn't like, get a gun and become top boy, Deshane, whoever. It was just to like self-preserve myself. And like, I'm going to just do stuff that makes me happy. And the things that made me happy didn't come at the cost of anyone or it became a commoditizable skill. I love strategy. I'm, I'm a very curious human being. I love advertising. So I'm constantly seeking information and data and narratives and what that all means. So for me, that's fun. So I was I able to make, make a career out of it. And many things have come off since that point. But that I, I, I had to put on a fuck it button. Like I had to turn it on to be like, fuck it then. If this, if this is what it is, I don't fuck it. I'm just going to do what makes me happy. But I am very, very present to not everyone's able to afford themselves that freedom. And for every one person like me that creates something good out of it, I feel like there's like five who go to jail, die, end up being like unworkable human beings that society no longer cares about, or they become hyper-capitalists and do mad things to make money. It's just like, it's, it's like, it's not in balance. And it's so great to share that conversation because I feel like you're a man in balance with a perspective so thank you so much for writing this book is there anything that you think you want to say to wider people to really understand what the value of that book will be to the world or to them just that it's my attempt to give a window into a lived experience that can hopefully widen the perspectives so that's the that's the only reason that it exists i just want people to have a wider perspective so that we can all go forward in the obvious right direction. And education is like, has to be the place where, where we're pushing for that because the generations come quickly, you know? I've got kids and you can see already, like within like five years, there's another generation who are right in front of the conversation. So if we're not actually teaching and learning together, then we lose grip of the conversation. Like, and 400 years later, we're still talking about the same things. So, so yeah, that's, that's my aim. So I just hope people will like be willing to peek into that window a little bit and get that wider perspective that will hopefully, hopefully make the conversation easier to go forward. That's it. Amazing. Please remind people with the name of the book, where they can find it and also where they can find you as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the book is, let me get a copy of it here from the stack. The book is, I heard what you said. Um, it's out June the 9th. Um, with Picador out in all major bookshops and online and whatnot. And you can find me, I'm only on two social media sites, Twitter, Instagram, Jeffrey K. Boachi, all one word, Twitter and Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on Facebook. Bebo, not yet. MSN, I'm not on any of that. By the end of the month, I'll tell you that. You're reading chapters in some sort of robe or something uh, by the end <laughs> of the month uh, with 30,000 followers. So I look forward to that time for you. <laughs> <laughs> doing some sort of dance, that's it, a that's dance it. routine to your book um, but listen thank you so much I really appreciate you coming in and sharing that experience and that testimony with us and it actually gave me lots of thought uh, on things that I'm, I'm just thinking about and I'm experiencing but I, I think 
one of the gifts that we can all be doing is like, what are we going to leave behind that's going to tell some of our stories or add to the perspective of our challenges? Um, and your book does that. So it's fantastic. Um, no, thank, thank you, you so for, much for man. making it. Nah, no, thank you for having that. me. It's been, it's been wicked. Dope Black Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.